Good morning. My name is Noah Verbacek, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture passage this morning. It comes from John chapter 1. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the Pew Bibles on page 833 or on the screens. So John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of, sorry, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Thank you, Noah, for reading that passage of scripture for us this morning. And before we get started, just how, how wonderful was it to have the choir lead us in worship this morning? That was, that was awesome. And uh, I'll just say, I had, I had like good expectations about how that was going to go. And I showed up to practice on Thursday and I was blown away. And in large part, that is the case because of the work and labor of Kathy Cohen, who uh, was on the keys um, this morning. Kathy painstakingly took the time to transcribe all the music for us. Um, she's very musically knowledgeable and gifted, and she wrote all the choir music for us for these pieces. Um, as well, Kathy made YouTube videos with a metronome and herself playing along for the people to practice with so that it would be easier for them and so we could come to practice prepared. So I would love it if we gave Kathy a round of applause too. This is the last time I'll do this today, I promise, Kathy. It's round three. <laughs> but thank you from all of us. Thank you for serving us with your gifts. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. Well, it won't be news to you that we are now less than a week away from Christmas, and many of you today are probably preoccupied, even while you sit there, uh, thinking about what preparations still need to be made for Christmas, thinking about what gifts you need to get, uh, how you need to prepare maybe to leave town or to have family come to visit you here in Harrisburg. Many of us will be preparing for parties and for feasting. Many of us will be listening to Christmas music and indulging in way too much sugar and cookies to get us into the Christmas spirit. Uh, many of us will be spending long hours putting together plastic toys and things of the like um, for your children. But despite all this hustle and bustle, as it's called, Christmas first before it is a season of light, is a season of darkness. Christmas and Advent in particular, the time that the church celebrates leading up to Christmas, is a time for us as the church to face down the darkest parts of our world. So much of the Christmas season encourages us just to put on a happy face and ignore the darkness of the world. But, but without looking headlong into the darkness, the darkness of war, of poverty, of selfishness and greed, of depression and sickness and death, to name just a few things, 
Without looking headlong into that darkness, we will not be able to see the light and life of Jesus in all of its glory and beauty. And so this passage we have before us this morning is a confrontation. In this passage, Jesus goes head to head with the forces of darkness, bringing to bear the light and life of heaven itself. And for that, this passage is a passage of good news for us this morning. But with that confrontation of the darkness comes a confrontation with the darkness in each of us. This passage presents us with a question and a choice. When Jesus shines his light into your heart, what will he find there? And how will you respond? In the words of one church leader that I've been reading this year preparing for Advent, Advent is not for sissies. And so with that, let's pray and we'll read and study this passage of scripture together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray that as we come before you this morning, that you would give us eyes to see what you have for us in your word. Lord, we thank you that what Tony read and prayed is true, that the king has come, and that you have come, Lord, to do business with darkness. You've come to push it back and to bring light. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that your kingdom would advance even now through the proclamation of the gospel in our hearts. Work faith in us. Help us to trust you and cling to you as our only hope. We love you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, so far as we've been studying this Christmas season in the introduction to John's gospel, uh, he's acquainted us with the word. The word, Jesus Christ, who was not only present with God during creation, but who himself is God. The word existed before anything was made, and through him all things were created. In other words, Jesus is God, and Jesus made the world. But John, the, uh, the apostle and gospel writer, also introduces us to John the Baptist, this messenger who himself was not the light, but was a faithful human witness to the light. And now after speaking about John the Baptist, this one who was not the light, John the writer returns to speak of Jesus, the true light. And what he tells us here at first should be shocking. It would have been shocking to John's original readers. So as we begin, let's read verse 9 and halfway through verse 10 again. It says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Now that statement is remarkable in the context of what John has said so far. The word, who was God, through whom the world was made, entered the very world that he had made. God became a man. The infinite took on finite human flesh. As Christian writer C.S. Lewis has said, myth has become fact. Or as another song that we sing around these parts on Christmas Eve typically goes, who would have dreamed 
or ever conceived that we could hold God in our hands. Speaking of the, the infant Jesus. And I wish we had more time to meditate on that point in and of itself and wring that truth dry for us. But that's not the goal of our text primarily this morning. But I do want to meditate, though, on that point in verse 9 where it says, the true light which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. Now, crime TV shows are a dime a dozen these days. So if you've seen one, you've seen them all. And so likely we've all seen at least a few episodes of CSI or NCIS or FBI or whatever other shows like that are out there today. Now, oftentimes in these shows, when they show up on a crime scene, they'll turn out the lights and turn on a black light. And what that black light enables those detectives to see are, are things that are hidden to the naked eye. Things they could not see otherwise unless that light was flipped on and shining on that crime scene. It allows them to get crucial details to get to the bottom of the case. And what John is saying here in verse 9 is that Jesus' coming was like a, ba- a black light shined into the hearts of all people. So Jesus Christ coming into the world and then the testimony about him that remains with us, when it gets close to you, will reveal what is truly in your heart. And so even this morning, as we are opening up the lowercase w word of God, the Bible, the black light of the capital W word, Jesus, is shining into you this morning. And so what's revealed What was revealed when Jesus shined his light into the world some 2,000 years ago? Let's keep reading, verses 10 and 11. Beginning of verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. The Jewish people, the the family from which Jesus came, his own people, his own family did not receive him. Now, this morning, we're all preparing for Christmas. We all likely are going to be spending more time than normal with family over the next week or two. But picture, I don't know if this is how your family gatherings look like, but picture a very happy, healthy family. Again, I don't know if this is what your family looks like. It's definitely not mine wholly. But picture like a great family where parents and children love each other. And let's say that, that the parents have just sent off their final kid to college or to begin joining the workforce. And their oldest child is, is now financially established and he or she has now bought a house. And the family says, okay, we're going to start a new tradition this year. We're going to go to our oldest child's house for Christmas instead of everybody coming to us. And so the parents come and they come with presents. And of course they come with the turkey because they're the parents and they still have to make the turkey. You know how that goes. And, and they come to their, their child's house and they knock on the door and the child opens the door and they say, what are you doing here? You're not welcome here. Get out of here. And they shut the door. And they leave them standing out in the cold. 
Those parents would have been devastated. Some of you probably feel that more acutely if you have children around that age who are here this morning. You'd be devastated. The the children they gave their lives for, the ones they loved and disciplined and sacrificed for all those years, want nothing to do with them. And you see, God served and loved and sacrificed for his people Israel. As we read in the book of Exodus, as we've been studying this fall, God freed them from slavery in Egypt. God gave them his good laws and commandments to follow. He led them into an abundant land with crops and cities, which they didn't work for. And even after they rebelled against him, he promised to send them this savior, this Messiah who would renew their fortunes and forgive their sins and establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. All of Israel's hopes and longings were tied up with their God's promises to them about this Savior. And yet when he comes, the very one who made the world, the same one who raised up Israel as his beloved son, came to his own, and they wanted nothing to do with him. That is the great tragedy of the book of John. And as you read further on in the book, it becomes more and more clear that they reject the one who came to save them all the way to sentencing him and sending him to death on a Roman cross. I think we all here this morning would agree that the world is a dark place that needs light, right? In our current day, our current cultural moment, I don't think anybody is, is arguing that fact. No matter what beliefs you hold, what background you come from, I don't think you're, you're disagreeing with that. J- just for an example, look at, look at our public discourse in the news right now. It's, it's heightened to apocalyptic levels of the way that we talk about things. Everyone thinks that somebody is evil and ignorant. Everybody thinks there is darkness in this world. But notice what verses 10 and 11 tell us about the particularity of our darkness as human beings in the world. What is the worst part about our ignorance and evil? It's that we are naturally predisposed to reject the very one who can fix our problem. We have it within us, built, ingrained within us to push back against the one who would come to save us. We think we are children of the light. We think we in and of ourselves are the light and we can push back the darkness. We are all bent as human beings on being our own saviors. And as the gospel of John continues, it becomes clear that this is why the Jewish people reject Jesus. Because Jesus confronts head on their notion that they can be their own savior. That they have the resources within themselves to save themselves, to bring about God's kingdom. So let's turn over to John chapter 8. And uh, we're going to look at verses, start in verse 37 and look on there. I just want to put us in this text to make us really feel the weight of this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. 
on this point. And so as we read, I'm going to give some commentary on it. So don't be distracted by that. Hopefully that helps us kind of uh, parachute into this passage and get a feel for the dialogue here. So John chapter 8, starting in verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. They're they're Jewish people. They're people that physically descended from Abraham. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Okay, so notice, Jesus is saying, my father is different from your father. Even though he is a Jewish man who would claim Abraham as his father, he says, my father is different than yours. Let's keep reading. They answer him, Abraham is our father. So if you were here last week, John the Baptist tells the Jewish people in Luke chapter 3 not to do the very thing that they do here. He says, don't claim to have Abraham as your father as if that in and of itself grants you some sort of special spiritual one-up on everybody else. You're not better off innately because of that fact. But they claim Abraham is our father. Let's keep reading, middle of verse 39. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, you are doing the works your father did. Jesus says to them, you're not part of the solution. You think you are. You think you're doing the works of Abraham, but you are actually a part of the problem. You're a part of the darkness. They respond, they say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Wink, wink, like you, Jesus. We know that Mary was pregnant before she got, uh, she got married to Joseph. Wink, wink. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now they could not say it more explicitly than that right there. Abraham is our father. Therefore, Because of our ethnic heritage, God is our father. Period. Let's finish this passage out. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. We'll stop there. You see, the Jewish leaders think they are the good guys. They think that they have the right to be children of God simply because of their Jewish ethnicity. But in reality, Jesus says to them here, that in and of itself just gives you the right to be called children of the devil. You can see why they might have resisted him and rejected him. He challenged head on the notion that they could be with their own savior. That because they were Jewish people, they had a right to be called children of God. But it's not just the religious Jewish people of the past who think they are the solution. 
that they can bring light to the darkness. It's us modern Western people as well. We do the same thing. Uh, Religion writer Tara Isabella Burton in her book Strange Rites shows how modern secular people are just like the Jewish leaders here. And in that book, she explains how certain how a certain cultural belief is in the air that she calls the wellness command, which essentially the the imperative goes something like this. See if you've heard this before. Be the best version of yourself. Whether it be through diet or exercise or sexual fulfillment or any other thing, seek your own happiness at all costs. Actualize your full potential and you can be happy and whole. You have everything you need within yourself. Essentially, this cultural message would tell us you're the only reason why you don't have light and life in your life. So go take it. Essentially inviting us, be your own savior. That's the way our secular world talks about this. But those are just a few ways we try to be our own saviors individually. What about the collective ways we do this? Many of us think that if only our political party could enact its policies and drive away the ignorance and evil of the other party, then light would finally dawn on us. Many in our world think that if we could simply create the right technologies, if we could simply hack human nature so that we could know more than we do and so that we could eradicate disease and death, then the darkness would be driven away. And still others think that if only we could get our society to abide by a certain set of moral codes, then the light would come upon us. But I give, I I say all that, I give all of those examples to boil down to this one truth. That each of those solutions to the darkness in our world begins with us. It comes from within our sphere of reality. We are ultimately the heroes in those narratives. And that is the darkest part of the darkness of our world. That as we cling to ourselves as the source of light, we cannot recognize the true light. The word was in the world, the one who made the world, and the world did not know him. That's a tragedy. And yet, although we are all in darkness in the world, although we are all blind, although we are all on the wrong side of history in this sense, and although we vehemently cling to our own ability to save ourselves, Jesus comes to confront us with his grace. Let's keep reading in verse 12 and 13. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, to all who embrace Jesus, 
to all who believe in him, all who are born of God can experience a different reality from life in the darkness of this world. They can be children of God. And one thing you'll see as you read John's prologue, what we call the introduction to John's gospel, these first 18 verses we're studying, is that John sets up themes in that prologue, which he teases out the rest of the way throughout his gospel. And one of those themes is what it means to be born of God. So he sets it up here in verse 13. But in chapter 3, when the religious leader Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus tells him in John chapter 3, verse 6, that you must be born, what? Again. You must be born again. Now, many of you, obviously some of you recognize that phrase. Some of you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not regular to church, probably recognize that phrase as well. I'm afraid this phrase has crossed into the, the realm of cliche and jargon. So we need to take a step back and ask, what does it really mean to be born again? What does that mean? Well, to start, let's think about human birth for a second. So let me ask you a few questions. How much say did you have in selecting the family that you're a part of? <laughs> right? Or did you choose where you would be born or what parents you would have? No, right? <laughs> that's, that's lunacy to even ask a question like that. Okay, well, let me ask one more. Did you contribute anything to your own birth from the time of conception until you emerged into the world? Did you have any part to play in that? No. Again, that's, that's lunacy to ask that question. And that is precisely John's point. It's lunacy for us to think that we have the resources within ourselves to bring light into this dark world. It's lunacy to think that our human scheming and imagination can make things right. Light breaks in from beyond our horizon, from beyond our vantage point. For anything to change in this dark world, we must be born again, born from above, born by the same spirit that conceived the Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And just as an aside, that is why Christians make such a big deal about the virgin birth around Christmas time. Because we need light and life to break in. We need a savior to break in who is like us, who is human, but who is different from us. Who actually has power over sin and death. In other words, we need God and we need man. We need someone to enter inside this world from outside of it to redeem it. We need a miracle like the virgin birth. But if it isn't clear enough already what John's getting at with the concept of being born again, let's look at what he says being born again doesn't mean. That's what he does in verse 13. He gives these, it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean this. So at the beginning of verse 13 there, it says, he gave the right to become children of God, verse 13, who were born not of blood. Now, 
Think there, think bloodline, not of a given bloodline. Think the Jewish people and what they were clinging to. In other words, God is not a respecter of persons. God does not care what your pedigree is. That's not what he bases his choice on to bring new life. We are not born again based on our family history or what college we attended or what our parents believed or what ethnic group we belong to. Second, he keeps going. He says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Being born again does not come about as the result of human willpower. You, you can't will God to make you his child. You can't will light and life into your life and the life of this world any more than you willed your parents to conceive and give birth to you. It's a non-starter, right? It, it's incoherent to talk and think like that. No human effort can make light and life dawn in your life and in this world. And that is where the gospel becomes offensive to our sense of self. That's where the confrontation is. That's where we as human beings in the world grate against the gospel. You see, because the gospel says, no matter how fit or happy or sexually fulfilled or self-actualized or obedient or religious you are, you will never be able to bring light and life into your life and into the world. The gospel says, no matter how wealthy you are, how good of a reputation you have, what your ethnic background is, what college you attended or what your parents believed, you will not be able to bring light and life into your life and into the world. The gospel says, no matter what political party you support, what social programs you get behind, or how much you advance human progress in the world, you will never be able to bring light and life in your life and into the world. Your own achievements and efforts and pedigree and social status and anything else, none of that gives you the right to become a child of God. What we all need is a savior. We need someone else, someone from beyond our horizon of possibility, someone who is God himself to invade our world. What we need most deeply is to surrender our efforts to save ourselves and receive Jesus Christ. And faith, that receiving of Jesus is like a breath of relief as we fall worn out and desperate from trying to save ourselves into the arms of our Savior. And when we receive him, we are given the right to become children of God. Now, today is a special day in the Bechtel household. Uh, it's my daughter Piper's first birthday, 
And, uh, and so we are celebrating today and we're super excited and thinking about the Lord's grace to us and giving us that little girl a year ago. But as I thought about that in this passage, I, I thought about the, that Piper has certain rights to me that nobody else has. So to give you an example, early on in uh, fatherhood, when she was probably less than two months old, she woke up one night in the middle of the night and was just not having it. She was not happy. happy. She was screaming her head off. And so I got up to go get her. Now just a caveat. This, is, this was me like one out of 500 times. Every other time I was grumpy and I was not a good person and probably said some things I can't say in church. But this time I got up and I just, I, I picked her up and she's just, I'm looking at her and she's letting me have it. And, and I'm just looking at her and I'm like overwhelmed by the fact like, I'm actually happy to see you. Little person screaming and who woke me up at three in the morning. Nobody else, none of you have the right to wake me up at three in the morning and have me be happy to see you. Especially not if you're screaming your head off at me. Or yesterday, my wife and I went out for our anniversary and uh, we had a great night and we had wonderful food and we came home and we were stuffed and all I wanted to do was to just melt into my couch and just sit there. It was like nine o'clock and I just wanted to relax for a little bit and then go to bed. But my wife reminded me, hey, we bought that kitchen for Piper's birthday. We have to put it together tonight so we can give it to her in the morning. And I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. And so I went to my garage and got my electric screwdriver and my toolbox at nine o'clock and we put that kitchen together last night for her for her birthday. She is the only person that has that right to, to have me do that for her. I would not do that for anybody else, trust me. But in thinking about that, Piper has a right to me, not because of anything she's done for me, although I think she's pretty awesome. It's because she's my child. It's because she was born for, into my family. And because of that, she has a right to my very heart. And if you have been born of God, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you have the very right to the heart of the God who made the universe. He loves you. You can come to him screaming at 3 a.m. and he will be happy to see you. You have his acceptance and approval, not by anything you've done, but by his grace. And this is what we mean when we talk about Christianity being a religion of grace. Is that God does it all. God invades our reality. God works something in us where it was not there before. And he gives something to us as a gift. And so all we have to do to become children of God, to begin the hard process of our life being transformed is to come to Jesus with open hands and receive him. That's what John says. We just have to receive him. Receive the one 
who came into this world, the one who went to the cross to die for your sin and for mine, to take on the darkness of this world. All we have to do is surrender our own efforts to be our savior and trust him as our savior. Several Bible scholars refer to verses 12 and 13 as the heart of John's gospel. And I think that claims correct, not just because this believing in Jesus is a theme that runs throughout the book, but because John directly states that this is his purpose in writing the gospel of John at the end of the book. So if you go to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, you'll see John write this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes a good thesis statement right there. John doesn't make us guess how he wants us to respond to his account of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. He wants you and I to believe that Jesus is our Savior and to have life in his name. And just as John writes a good thesis statement and is unambiguous, let me be unambiguous about the goal of my sermon this morning. Let me give you my thesis statement. Today, in response to the gospel that you have heard, I want you to receive Jesus as Savior. You have been confronted today with the message of the gospel that you can't save yourself, that you need a Savior from outside of your realm of possibility to break in and transform you Jesus is shining his black light into your heart this morning. And the question for us is, what will be revealed there? If if you're here this morning and you recognize that you've been living your life trying to be your own savior, turn to the one who is greater than you. If you've been confident in your ability to, to be your own savior, humble yourself this morning. Surrender your own efforts and come to Jesus. And as you relax into his grace, he will embrace you into his arms. And to the many of you here this morning who are Christians, who would claim Jesus is your savior, believe in him again today. Believe in him afresh That he's savior even over those parts of your life where you still want to cling to your own willpower and ingenuity and achievements and status and whatever else. Trust him and enjoy your rightful privilege as a child of God that's been given to you as a gift of grace. Enjoy the privilege of having the heart of your father. Heaven has come to us. Jesus has come to bring light and life. The question is, will will we receive him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for confronting us with your gospel. 
We thank you that your, your gospel is good news. It's hard to hear. It cuts at who we think we are most deeply. But Lord, help us to embrace you and see in your good news something on the other side, something in our life that looks much, much different, where we don't constantly have to try to drum up the willpower to bring light and life into this world, but where we can trust in you by faith and by your power, you can change us, can transform us, and you can make us the kind of people that bring light and life into this world through your power at work within us. So Lord Jesus, melt our defenses to your gospel and help us to trust in you this morning. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.